millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's in a a rather chilly and autumnal Birmingham. I'm back home in my hometown. And today we are joined by a veritable feast of my friends. We have uh, Mike Holden up in Burnley in England, Piotr Curzon, who's in Mexico somewhere, Kelly Saunders. Kelly, please remind us where you are. Um, Somewhere in the southeast. Smashing the southeast of the United States, if our accent didn't give that away. Greg Sattel, I believe you hail from Philadelphia, sir. Absolutely true. And then we have Dr. Dan. Uh, Dr. Dan, uh, where, where are you domiciled? Where are you hold up, sir? I am in Washington, D.C. Boom. There you go, folks. This is going to be your panel. There will be some more people joining us before the end of the podcast. If you are listening to this podcast, and I know there's some 5,000 of you religiously download every episode, why don't you join up to Clubhouse? What that means is that you can then join the audience when we go live with these, and it means that you then can ask a question. You can actually join the podcast. But in a week that has seen a refugee boat capsize in the channel, and some 31 people drowned. We ask, has Boris Johnson lost the plot? On Tyneside for a speech to business. After a tough few weeks, the PM perhaps keen to turn the page. But which page? Forgive me. Forgive me. And then completely off script. I don't know if you've been to Peppa Pig World. Who's been to Pans? I've been who's been to Peppa Pig World. Not enough. I was, well, it's fact, I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, but I loved it. And Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. It, it has uh, very safe streets. Safe and happy at Peppa Pig World, but back in the world of politics, there is some danger. In your speech to the CBI, you lost your notes, you lost your place, you went off on a tangent about Peppa Pig. Frankly, is everything OK? I think that, I think that people got the vast majority of the... Uh, the points I wanted to make, and I thought, I thought it went over well. But it's not going well with his party or with voters. Flagship policy promises hitting the buffers in delivery. Disappointment across the north of England at scaled-down plans for rail investment and the spiralling fallout from his botched attempt to replace the system for discipline in MPs. A plan for social care that doesn't protect the poorest from catastrophic costs. The PM's opponents happy to capitalise. I think there are many, many people that realise this isn't a plan. Today we've seen a broken promise from the Prime Minister. I suspect we're going to see more because every day, every week, we see another broken promise from this Prime Minister. Let's start with you, Mike. Mike Holden over there in Burnley. Has Boris Johnson lost his grip? It's certainly starting to look that way. You've caught a few other things that, that were of note this week. The, the speech this week is, is reminiscent of one that the previous um, Tory leader, Theresa May, gave, but that was at the party conference. 
where she had a coffin fit in the middle of the, the speech and the letters fell off the backdrop as she was speaking. The speech this week that he gave to CBI was on the same level as that. Although I would say, I think the Peppa Pig thing was part of the script. He wanted to bring that in because that's that's Boris Johnson's shtick, if you like. That's one of the things he'll do is bring in something that's memorable and we'll get some headlines. But when he lost his notes, couldn't find his way and then showed himself to be not the great orator that everyone thought he was by just not being able to wing it. That didn't do him any, any good at all. As you, as you, I think you, your earlier recording said, someone said to him, are you okay? Today in Prime Minister's Questions, which was speaking in Parliament, he was asked it again. That is starting to hit home. Piotr, PMQs, he got somewhat of a rousing round of applause. Was that because everybody is sensing blood and because the Cabinet... Uh, are kind of coalescing around the fact they need an adult in the room, and that adult is probably Rishi Sunak. Was the was oh, were these cheers to mask Tory plots? Well, I, I think that we know uh, is is not one who's ever really been able to galvanise every single one of his party. The main reason he's been wielding power for so long is because there simply doesn't offer someone who can control the party in such a strong way. Uh, and also because Labour are in a disarray. I want to draw, you know, everyone's attention to uh, when Mike was talking about, you know, Boris Hasn't Think of April 2018, when he was on a trip to some billionaire's house uh, in Italy, uh, and he was in the airport the night after, hungover drunkenly in his suit uh, as Foreign Secretary. This is the gentleman that leads our, our government and our country. And so I think now his antics are beginning to catch up with him. The one thing that has always kept him together was, whilst he's a buffoon and his buffoonery is endearing and makes everyone enjoy his, you know, listening to him, yet, uh, his speech to the Confederation of British Industry was, well, just that. Not a speech. It was the first time we've seen Boris Johnson fumble and stumble and actually not do well. Um, and I think that the Tory party are beginning to look elsewhere. We have... Rish Sunak, very well positioned. We have Liz Trust, who is beginning to make her way forward as Foreign Secretary. There's certainly other people who are beginning to show their hands. And I think Boris needs to, if he wants to stay in power, well, get it together. Although I don't ever think he really had it in the first place. Mike, Boris Johnson was seen out at the theatre yesterday, not even wearing a mask. What does he say about our Prime Minister? You know, he's flouting his own guidelines. Well, he's, he's going down the trunk line, isn't he? That he thinks he's invincible, he thinks rules don't apply to him, and he's determined to show that he thinks that at every opportunity. As you say, it's only two weeks ago that he was marching around a hospital without a mask on, and he received a lot of um, uh, criticism for that, and his, his response is not to be more circumspect and be more careful and wear a mask when he should, it's to show people that he can uh, get away with not wearing a mask whenever he feels like it, and there's nothing that anyone can do. But it, the, the wheels are definitely starting to come off. He's, he's getting, there are whispers being had now about, I mean, you'll know this, but our American friends may not. There's a committee called the 1922 Committee, which are very powerful Tory MPs, and if people are unhappy with their leader, they send letters into it. There are rumours that letters have already started to be sent in, and that come the end of the year, if he hasn't turned it round, he, he could be facing leadership charge. I think that's unlikely, but the, the whispers are, 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 are now the the whispers are now out there, and Mike, this kind of humus is gone. Uh, sorry, I, admit, I think that by the end of the year, that for first off, first off, sounded to me like a, a, a pretty tight time scale. You know, this is a leader that just two years ago brought them one of the biggest election victories since the nineteen eighties. You know, so very much um, so. I think it's yeah. unlikely to happen, but the whispers are there. But it has to be said, though, Christmas is going to be a fraught time because if, in effect, commercial Christmas is cancelled because people can't get their turkeys, let alone their Xboxes and various different presents because of supply chain issues, which the whole world is having, but we are having them even worse because we're no longer part of the European Union, this could be quite a dismal January, couldn't it? Uh, very much so, yeah. I mean, the, the, uh, the current COVID crisis and the current supply chain crisis 
of taking the back seat because all the other crises are piled up on top of it at the minute. So they're not being seen, but the time will come. Yes, we, it, when we get to shortages coming towards Christmas, and if we end up, and again, this is this is one of Bryce's problems, is that he's in he's being squeezed from both sides. There are people who say we should be having some restrictions now for the, the health of the public, and we still got not far short of a thousand people uh, a, a week dying from COVID, but that the 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 wing of his party that he is currently driving him and pushing him harder are the ones that will refuse absolutely to have any restrictions, and that's why he marches about there to mask because he's playing to that gallery. So uh, when that, those things start to hurt him, um, th- it's it's going to be that side that's going to push him, I think, rather than the more liberal wing. Mike, last question before we move on to matters stateside. Do you think we can look somewhat slightly smugly to say, look, we're out of the European Union. Look at those Europeans. They're writing in Rotterdam. You know, they're getting argy and all bargy over there in Austria. And heaven knows what other fracas that, that they're, in, they're involved in. Things haven't turned nasty for us in terms of our various lockdowns, haven't we? Can we say, you know, oh, we're out of Europe, look at us. We are civilised, we are British, we are just a cut above the, the, those those people in the EU. If there are no turkeys at Christmas, there will be riots. Couldn't agree with you more. And on that note, folks, we're going to go to to Washington, or at least to the United States, and we're going to have a look at the various trials and what they say about the soul, the pulse, the temperature of the United States. Verdict is as follows. In the Superior Court of Glenn County, State of Georgia, the State of Georgia versus Travis McMichael, case number CR000433. Jury verdict four. Count one, malice murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. I'm going to ask that whoever just made an outburst be removed from the Count two, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count three, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count four, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count five, felony murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count six, aggravated assault. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count seven, aggravated assault. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count eight, false imprisonment. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Count nine, criminal attempt to commit a felony. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Dated this 24th day of November, 2021, signed by the four person. Lola, I'm going to start with you. What has the last week told us about the American justice system? Has it told us that it's blind to uh, pressures of race and ideology with the verdicts in the Ahmad Arbery and Carl Rittenhouse case? Say that one more time where I feel that it's blind to. I want to get those exact words you just said. I thought I was interested in that. As it, it, it's blind to, to, to pressures, whether it's to do with race or ideology, because look, we've fundamentally had two verdicts of which right leaning Americans can say, yay, Second Amendment rights. I can defend myself with my assault wa- weapon, you know, in public. And the left can say, and black folks can say, yay, we've had justice for Ahmed Arbery, a man who was just jogging. So surely America can say its justice system is doing its thing. Well, I mean, it can say that, but I don't think it would be true. I think what we've seen in the last week is that there are so many sort of contextual drivers of why things end up the way that they end up in certain cases. And consistency is not something that we experience, unfortunately, in our justice system. So, you know, today's verdict, uh, to be quite honest, I was surprised by. I think it's the right decision. Last week's, I think, you know, was colored by 
a lot of unconscious biases that were in the favor of the gentleman Kyle Rittenhouse. And, and I think I, I, that's, that's where I'd close it. The impact of unconscious bias on how we define what justice is, is still something that we're going to be struggling with and grappling with here in the U.S. and, and globally for a long time. Kelly, why do Americans always seem to treat these trials as some kind of stress test for its constitution, you know, and some kind of litmus test for a progress on race? I can't really answer that other than, you know, I think that these trials offer an opportunity for your average everyday American to take take part, I guess, as a viewer, at least um, in, in a trial or in the justice system in a way that everybody is consuming it. And so it just becomes a topic. And I think that uh, what we've experienced is less people considering the constitution and more people like hyperbolizing about how this is going to Im- impact us, to be honest. I, I always think it's kind of, kind of fascinating. I'm going to come to you, uh, Dr. Dan, then to you, Greg. As a student of history, you're always told about, you know, the third Republican France and the Dreyfus Kale, uh, trial, sorry. There's always these kind of pinnacle trials in, in the history of a country, but it seems that Every year, every other year, there is the call celebre in America, and it, it always seems to arrest the attention of the nation. As I said, whether it's France or the UK or Germany or wherever, the, these trials seem to happen once every generation, not once every other year. Dr. Dan, one thing that, that Lola said, which I thought was somewhat quite telling, she says she was surprised at the verdict. She thought it was the right one, but she what she was surprised for for us in the rest of the world who aren't african-americans tell us why african-americans could well have been surprised that justice was was done today in the ahmad aubrey trial yeah thanks uh royfield and uh great point lola it is unfortunate that there's been a quote-unquote thirst for justice among the african-american community and that thirst has led to well let's put it this way the injustices and that has led to a thirst for victory. I'll allude quickly to the OJ trial. Remember when OJ got off or was found not guilty, so to speak, at the time there was a celebration in some parts of the community that, hey, we finally got somebody got off or whatever. In that case, there was a thirst because there have been, I don't know, maybe nine times out of 10 injustices against people in those communities and let's call it what it is in the black community. And therefore, so when they finally got one victory, it's like, oh, it didn't matter what the facts of the situation was to be perfectly candid. And that's not how it should be, but that's how it has been felt. Because if you've been so wronged, you finally get a victory, you celebrate, I guess, is what happened. So fast forward to today. What has really happened is, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised. I was hoping that that would be the case. And let's not forget or overlook the fact that there was it was nine white jury members and one black person. And these were sounds that were pus- supposed to be the canary in the coal mine for what the outcome would be. And fortunately, that's not what happened. And justice was served in the views of those who believe that. And I think justice was served in this case, not necessarily for the family in the sense that they don't have their son. Uh, but the sad that this is what it has come to. But is justice blind to your question and to the point of what Lola had mentioned? Look, let's not deceive ourselves. We had two outcomes in two recent cases in the past week, different outcomes. And just as you said, how do we decipher what does that mean? It is used as a litmus test, but it is a false litmus test. The justice system still needs work because if this case had gone, if there weren't any videos, other uprisings, meaning community involvement and civil activism, this wouldn't have been what it was or what it what the outcome has been. I'm definitely actually not 100 percent, but I'm definitely leaning towards I'm sure that that wouldn't this wouldn't have been the outcome. So I'm glad that we were able to let the voices of the community rise up to hold the justice system accountable and shake it up a little bit to the point where they made the necessary adjustments and that the right outcome was there, that we actually use a human lens to look at this justice system as opposed to race. But do not get it twisted. There's still an opportunity for growth, and the justice system still is fraught with its um, weaknesses. I'm done speaking. And, you know, Dr. Dan, if I may, just just to double down on on a point, yeah, that Dr. Dan is making here. If we think about 
switching the, and I hate to do this because I know it's kind of that hyperbole that I think it was Kelly was talking about, but let's just, let's just play it out really quickly. The problem is the reason why there is no blindness is if, if Kyle Rittenhouse had been a black man and the gentlemen uh, who were found guilty today had been white, the, the, the surprise at the outcome would have been completely reversed. We would have been shocked if Kyle Rittenhouse was black and he was found not guilty. That would have been a surprising outcome. And, you know, some might argue that it would never happen. I would be one of those people. If the gentleman today had been not found guilty or found, I'm sorry, found guilty and they were white, if they were black and they'd been not found guilty, you get what I'm saying, the surprise wouldn't have been there. So like, that's where I just think we have to face and really be honest with ourselves about the inequities that that still exist in this country and in the justice system specifically. Greg, 12 of the potential 48 jurors were black and the defense attorneys managed to get rid of 11 of those. Should that has come as any surprise to us in the Ahmed Arbery case? Yeah, I actually was surprised by that because that's that's a process in, in Vadir. And you'd expect the, the prosecutors to fight a little harder on that. And also the fact that there were only I forget what the racial makeup was, but the fact that there were only 12 uh, black jurors is was in the jury pool was surprising to me. But to be honest, I'm not an attorney and I don't really have um, I, I, I sort of hesitate to to express an opinion there because I, I don't really have an expertise. But I, I do think we should draw attention to two additional data points. One is the civil in Charlottesville where they found damages against the organizers of the Unite the Right rally, which I think is something that's really significant because basically what it means is you don't have to be Kyle Rittenhouse. I mean, we all like to think that Kyle Rittenhouse is scot-free now, but Kyle Rittenhouse, or I mean, it's a different state, but anybody... You don't have to, like, plow your car and kill a woman in Charlottesville. Just by helping to organize that rally, people are basically going to be bankrupted for life, which is obviously not, you know, that's not no consolation for, for life lost and all the people terrorized. But it's also not nothing. The other data point I think we should we should call out is just the fact that everything in America is calm. Some people, you know, think the decisions were good. Some of them were bad, think they were bad, but there is no, we're not at each other's throats. There are no riots in the streets. Nobody's threatening to take down there's no insurrections at state capitals or at, at the nation's capital. And that, I think, is what a, what a difference leadership makes when we have a leader that who, who believes in and supports our institutions rather than uh, one that tries to divide us and tear the, those institutions down. Off the back of Greg's point, Kelly, uh, America is bitterly divided politically. Society, depending on what mood you're in, you can say, is riven by uh, class and racial divides, etc., etc. Do you think Americans maybe look to its justice system a little bit too much to be maybe the one institution which can basically hold up uh, true American ideals. And maybe that's one of the reasons why these cases are always called celebs, always like a big sporting frenzy with the whole nation watching. Is your question, are we obsessed with this because we think it can somehow provide us an answer? Absolutely. Because yes, Biden has maybe provided a little bit more leadership on these cases and maybe Trump did. You know, Trump always seemed to be a little bit more incendiary. And to Greg's point, uh, you know, what happened in Charlottesville, you know, Trump's comments afterwards definitely helped inflame feeling afterwards. So we've had more sober leadership under Biden, at least when it comes to judicial uh, proceedings. 
you know, he hasn't inflamed, he's kept out of it. But with a country which is so divided politically, do you think maybe it's trying to get the the judicial system really to be the soul of the country and maybe to help to help heal and to be equal justice is supposed to be blind in that kind of classic case? Because our politicians generally have kind of uh, led us to a place where um, America feels very fractious. Well, I would I guess I would disagree with uh, any sort of sober interpretation of uh Biden's actions. I mean, he called Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist. I think it was before he was in office. So, you know, I don't know if that counts. But, you know, he also released a second statement after his first that was rather sober. The second one was the opposite of. So, you know, that part I don't I I wouldn't agree with it. But I I don't know if from my perspective, I think Americans are hoping there's at least uh, one institution that they can trust. I think that that's about as far as it goes. I don't think that Americans on either side expect an answer to this division at all. And I don't think that they expect it because, you know, between between the media and, you know, the political hyperbole that, that comes from our government generally, regardless of who's in office, I, you know, I think that, that they consider that to be a, a lost option. But, you know, I think anybody living under a government would hope at least that one institution is going to do the right thing. Dr. Dan, uh, does today's verdict mean that the crime of running while black will be struck off the U.S. penal code once and forever? I can say that's no. And sadly, saying no, this is this is not the litmus test we're looking for. This is just maybe scratching the surface. There's a lot of work that needs to be done for years. So the, the short answer, bottom line up front, is no. Um, I pray and wish it is so that it is not that running while black is not an issue. But I have a son who's black. I have two daughters who are black. I worry about them. They're all teens. And I've gone over the the, the, the talk, as we call it in the community, the sad talk where you have to tell them, hey, if you get pulled over or be careful, and these are the things you need to do to stay alive. It's ridiculous. So yeah, that's that's how I feel about it. It's sad, but that's, that's where we are. So I don't believe anyone until I see the proof. And that has to be multiple of these litmus tests that have come back to answer the question. So, yeah. And on that note, it's kind of apropos for me to say right here and now, we are recording the podcast Mid-Atlantic. We do these on Clubhouse. We do these uh, generally in the middle of each week. If you are listening to this podcast, if you've downloaded it and you've got your earbuds in and uh, you just heard Dr. Dan speak, why don't you download uh, the Clubhouse app? And it means that you can be in the audience when we record one of these shows. If you're in the audience now, now is the time for you to hold up your hand and you'll be called upon stage and you can put a point uh, uh, to any of the panel or just basically let us know your thoughts and feelings of the two trials in America and what it says about America as uh, we get to the denouement of uh, 2020. Um, The rest of the world is always fascinated about and scared uh, about America and uh, the role that guns play in, in American society. A reading of history is that Americans had the right to bear arms so there could be a standing militia just in case those Brits decided to come back and uh, convert you from uh, patriots back into loyalists. But I don't think we're going to invade America anytime soon. So, But, the gu- but guns seem to be a, a central part of, of American society with uh, the American identity, at least for some Americans. Do- Aram, you just kind of joined us on stage. Do you think that maybe the position of guns and America's understanding of this assault of, let's say, an AR-15 assault weapon being banded about where there are hundreds of people protesting, do you think that that will give maybe some Americans pause for thought about open carry in states like Wisconsin? I, I think American opinions on guns are pretty hardened as it is. I don't think that there's, there's been so many cases with such guns that at this point, you know, so many, you know, particularly the mass shootings, right. Which are, you know, get a enormous amount of media attention for good reason that I don't think that there's a lot of people who are sort of on the fence. Like, you know, I just don't know which way I feel about this. I think it's pretty clear that where people stand on it and, you know, maybe even more importantly, 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think it's pretty clear where the Supreme Court is going to fall on this. And I believe it's the, the Mississippi case that's coming through may actually force states to um, basically uh, treat gun laws as re- with reciprocity, which I, without being a lawyer, I think basically what it means is if Alabama sets their gun laws a certain way, California is going to have to essentially observe those gun laws, even if it's diametrically opposed to them. So as you know, a matter of sort of public opinion, I, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of movement because I, I don't know what it would take to change your mind about you know, sort of killing power, right? More than say Vegas, you know, what happened in Las Vegas or at the concert where, you know, that man rain bullets upon a crowd or at the Pulse nightclub or, 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 or there's just so many examples. I don't know how anyone except someone maybe, you know, coming of age and starting to have a political worldview couldn't have a fully formed opinion on this. Rick, you've joined us on stage. How are you today? Interesting conversation. I don't know. The gun thing, I don't see many people's minds being changed. I certainly don't see Congress making any laws that will be national laws. Um, Many of our states are actually loosening their, their gun laws rather than tightening them. Which is sad. I, you know, I don't think more guns on the streets helps. Uh, you know, I, I, it's just kind of crazy to think that it would. But I don't know. I, I worry now that that every protest now is going to have guns. Well, well, well the, 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 this is my this is my worry. Like I, I, number one, very obviously with my accent, I'm British. And there aren't guns in British society. Even policemen routinely do not carry guns. Right. That, that's number one. But I kind of speak for, you know, the rest of the world on this when I say that we're all incredibly just confused about America and guns. But I think we can just about kind of understand how you might have a gun by your bedside cabinet. So if somebody decides to break in, you know, you can uh, defend yourself. I think. The rest of the world can kind of understand that. What we can't understand is somebody parading around outdoors, open carry, when there are demonstrations. That just seems to me like the tipping point of something else much more dangerous. Because you are saying that demonstrators, pro and anti cause, can face each other legally and wave firearms at each other. You know, I do think that it's it's important to note that very much as as Aram suggested that that these opinions are pretty well baked in, but they're baked in against guns and for common sense gun laws. You know, usually depending on how the question's asked, 70-30. So there's, you know, overwhelming support for common sense gun laws. The issue 
is that the gun lobby doesn't represent gun owners as much as it represents gun manufacturers. And, and that's a critical part of the issue. I don't want to get too too lost on guns because it's just part of one of the Rubik's Cubes of issues which these two verdicts have kind of brought up. But and anybody feel free to jump in and answer this question. But can we feel some modicum of not satisfaction, but, you know, can we at least go things aren't quite as bad because Amador Brie has received justice in Georgia. Is it significant that it, this was a deep South state with a jury which was 11 white, one African American, and he got justice? Anybody feel free to answer. I think the, uh, the composition of the jury certainly does make a difference. I think this is one of the uh, representation, inclusivity, all these things are very delicate matters. And I think getting it right is never going to be it's never going to, you're going to get it 100% right. You know, there's the idea of installing quotas in Parliament and the UK and these sorts of things but I feel that forced measures like that make it uh, not uh, counterproductive. You need organic ways to find you know, a true reflection of the composition of that population through gender, sex, race age, all these things are an important uh, demographic indicator to consider. You're never going to satisfy everybody. So you've got to be, you know, you've got to do a lot of, lots of consultation uh, and ensure that it, it is, you know, as reflective as possible. You know, with these sorts of things, it's also, uh, I mean, the gun culture is very divisive. I think we're struggling with some technical gremlins there. We couldn't quite hear you through half of that. So I, I'm just going to ask the question again. Again, and I'm going to throw this out to you, Lola, and then any then somebody else feel free just to fall off the back of what whatever Lola says. Is it not noteworthy that this black man who was just in, in, in possession of black skin whilst he was out uh, jogging was gunned down uh, by three white men? That he received justice, at least his family, the police received justice in a deep southern state surely that is something to note considering that when the video came out last year the republican governor of georgia said this was utterly shocking and disgusting and justice needed to be served i think you know the answer i would i would give is yes it is something to if not celebrate like you said it's notable it is the outcome that is deserved it is justice so in, in that regard it shouldn't be something that we have to jump up and down with joy for it. But I do think it shows, particularly in the state of Georgia, a shift towards maybe call it more of a blue mentality. And I think we've seen that with some of the recent elections there as well. So again, on a, on a state-by-state -state basis, this is a win for Georgia and something that I think, you know, if it hadn't gone this way, there would have been a lot of despair. Yeah, I want to push back just a little bit. I think that undoubtedly it's the, you know, the verdict is right and, and it signals progress in exactly the way that Lola said. I think that it's really easy to forget about how botched the investigation was and the fact that the prosecutor is going to face charges for prosecutorial misconduct. And this isn't a this isn't a example of justice done right. It's a it's an example of justice that eventually was done right. And that's a really, really big difference because absent the video and the kind of evidence that was in this case, it would have been an example of justice done incredibly wrong. I mean, it would have been un incredibly unjust if there hadn't been that video to essentially show us what happened, that you know these three men would have gotten off scot-free. And that undoubtedly happens often. And so I, while I see it as, yes, absolutely a step in the right direction, it's also exactly an example of the sort of systemic racism that some people spend a lot of time and effort trying to pretend doesn't exist. This is exactly what systemic racism looks like in, in, you know, in, in process. You know, we see three white guys who track down and murder this man. And then the police show up and they kind of have a, hey, how you doing, what happened conversation. And based off of that conversation, you know, in the way that they approached it, there wasn't even, you know, they weren't even charged for, what was it, two months? So while, yeah, again... it was two months. Yeah, yeah. While, while, again, definitely lots to celebrate today. 
I, I think we got to be really careful. And, and also justice for Ahmad Arbery would be a healthy Ahmad, you know, taking a jog yes, to sure. get ready to, you know, make space for Turkey tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree with that 100%. Uh, and, and actually, so do I. And, and dare I say, it, sometimes I have to ask these questions uh, of which I don't necessarily believe in the questions uh, of which I'm asking just to get a, to, you know, to kind of get to the truth uh, of the matter. And it is utterly shocking that there were, I think, three district attorneys that basically said there was no case to answer here. And it was when the video came out that then public opinion then ignited, I think, the fourth district attorney then to uh, basically get these get these guys actually arrested. So doesn't this, to, to, pro- to prove Aram's point here, doesn't this prove that the level of evidence needed to get somebody convicted of, of killing um, a, a black person it is somewhat higher than if it was the other way around? Because if that video had not surfaced, we would not uh, be talking about justice for Ahmad Aubrey. This would have been quietly forgotten about, wouldn't have got national attention, and those three uh, murderers would be sat home with their families. Anybody feel free to chime in. I think if you juxtapose this with the Carl Rittenhouse case. Kelly, I don't know if it's just me, but I'm struggling to hear you. You're utterly in the matrix. If I can chip in. At, uh, at, Go on, at, Mike, uh, and then we'll do Eric and then I think Rick. Sorry, I didn't mean to uh, talk over anyone, but um, one of the things that that's struck me from, from our side of the Atlantic um, over both of these cases and something that I've seen online today is comments about this is what can happen when you get the right judge, which from a, a UK legal perspective seems a very odd thing that uh, a judge in a trial can have such an effect on the potential outcome. I mean, there were pictures uh, from the Carl Rittenhouse trial of Carl Rittenhouse leaning over the table, staring at some uh, evidence alongside the judge like he was his, his dad, you know, which is completely mind-blowing for us in the UK to see. And I know that judges, or I think that judges at that level are political appointments in the US. Is that correct? No, they're elected. Oh, they're elected. Oh, my, my apologies. Okay, okay. But as, as yeah, I say... They're only political uh, appointments at the federal level. Oh, I see. My apologies. My, my ignorance. I, I, um, but it does, <laughs> it does strike me that they, they do seem to have a lot more influence on the running and the evidence and what's presented. That, that wouldn't, uh, that those kind of uh, levels of influence wouldn't uh, apply in the UK in quite the same way. Judges you in the UK uh, sit right. Mike, I'm going to slightly push back on you because this is something which I've discussed in in a few rooms here on Clubhouse about the difference between the UK and the US justice system. There are no politically appointed judges in the UK, whether it's on a national level or local county circuit level. Nobody votes on judges. So actually what happens is we actually trust our judges. We don't believe there's political bias. I think that's what Mike's alluding to. Now, whether there is or isn't, I'm not saying that there is or isn't, but judges and their pronouncements do not have the same kind of political dynamite in the UK that potentially they do in the US. We don't look into court cases with the same kind of feverish kind of uh, inspection that maybe people do in the US and say, well, this judge tipped the scales either way. And I am sure that UK judges do do it, but it's not part of our uh, social fabric. We kind of we kind of trust our judges in a way that because they're not voted for, I, I believe we, we kind of put them in that light. So I, I, I push back very slightly with what you're saying there, Mike. And, and I, I think that potentially it could be naivety on our part but still left and right don't have fever games about a judge's pronouncements in a specific case in the uk like it never ever happened yeah you you never hear the judge got the wrong got the decision wrong in in, in uk cases do you i mean or that you sometimes do in sentencing uh that if, if someone's found guilty and the sentences seem to be too lenient or too heavy you'll I, you'll hear accusations there but other than that it's, it's very almost unheard of, I, I would say. But yeah, it's I, totally unheard of. So I, I have to push back on uh, generally on the thought that uh, the judge in the Rittenhouse case 
in some way uh, achieved this acquittal for him for two. Well, and, and on another fact, he was actually appointed by governor in 1983, who was who was a, a Democrat. He was not elected. Anyways, he could have, you know, made a ruling on the motion for a mistrial with prejudice, and he didn't. He left it to the jury. And, you know, I think the point that I was going to make earlier when when my signal was lost was that I think it's also something we should pay attention to is the fact that the jury is who convicted the men in Georgia. I, I do think that our criminal justice system is um, seriously flawed. And I think that in both cases, we can see that that is the case. And I am happy that at least for the um, Rittenhouse trial, the things that you know prosecutors are willing to do, the, the way that they skirt the lines of people's constitutional rights, it was made visible, regardless of how you feel about Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, I, one thing I do feel is that we do have prosecutorial misconduct all over this country that does happen to people that don't have the means to, to bring a good defense to court. And so what we saw happening was, you know, what happens to people all the time, but that don't have, you know, GoFundMe or other other ways to finance um, any sort of de- defense against the types of, of truly heinous behavior that we saw both in Georgia and from my opinion, or from my perspective, which would be my opinion, what we also saw in Kenosha. Thank you uh, for that. Tyrion, you, you've joined us on stage. We're, we're about to start winding things up. So you best make your point quickly, sir. Yeah, I was going to go back to something you said quite a few minutes ago, that the that the Rittenhouse uh, decision makes it okay for people in a demonstration to wave their guns around. It doesn't just make it okay for them to wave them around. It, it, it makes it okay if they feel a little bit scared to shoot the other side, and the other side can shoot back. And if you play that out to its logical end, it seems to me it makes it okay for there to be a civil war where everybody's not guilty. I must admit, I'm inclined to agree with you, and I said so before. I'm not relitigating whether Carl Rittenhouse actually felt that he was under attack or not. But the precedent the whole thing sets just seems to me antithetical to, to peaceful demonstrations, because you are saying in various states where it's open carry, I understand that, but that it's not necessarily everywhere in the US, but you are saying you can come armed with a military grade weapon to a demonstration you know and both sides can do that you know the, the, uh, you, you may, can't may you I... can't speak to go on hands hi everybody thanks and, and welcome thank you thanks for letting me jump in that's not a military weapon it just looks scary but in fact it's not also more importantly no one was just waving guns around willy-nilly if you know anything about gun control and you actually look hands hands you know what forgive me i did say waving around i I, i've put a certain level of emotion in into my point but i think my fundamental point still stands that and i have to keep on saying this for the rest of the world looking at this the whole thing makes no sense i'm not saying that this boy because he's a boy he can't even legally drink but he was walking around with this weapon legally that he didn't feel scared, that he did, that he wasn't under attack. I'm not let's put that all to one side. The optics, and this is what this show is all about: compare and contrast between two sides of the Atlantic. The optics are baffling to us on this side at, at the Atlantic about what it says is permissible in a demonstration. Well, and Royfield, if I can jump in, I mean, well, sorry I'm for the background. I'm in costume. Finish my. No, I'm going to respond to Royfield real quickly. It's an interactive conversation. You'll, you'll be fine. So what I was going to say there is the optics are also really egregious to many of us here. And the thing that I, I still can't wrap my mind around is just the simple fact that we don't have a permissible vigilante system of, of sort of defending businesses here in the United States. The police do that. And we all know because he said so himself, he went there to defend businesses from the protests. So the false pretenses that led to him being there with a gun really do kind of color sort of some of the just real confusion that a lot of us have about why we're even defending this based on the right to bear arms. The right to bear arms has nothing to do with the right to pretend you're a policeman. There's no right to pretend you're a policeman. What was the false pretense? I explained myself. Okay, ha- Thank you. 
Okay, hands. Please reply, sir. Okay. I don't know what the false pretense was. Maybe that was before I was in the room. Anyway, if you actually look closely at Rittenhouse's movements and body language, he's very careful about where the weapon is pointing. Extremely careful. He wasn't just waving it around. He wasn't aggressing against people. He wasn't threatening anybody. Brandishing, shooting randomly. None, none, none of that. His gun control and discipline was, in fact, excellent. Why was he there, Hans, in your opinion? I don't care. Okay, and that is where we should leave it. <laughs> That's a separate matter. I mean, I might care, but it's, it's, it's really irrelevant not. to my point. So I might agree with you that the gun laws in, in Wisconsin are, you know, baffling and maybe there's a loophole. But in any case, he was very clearly inside the bounds of the law. And regardless, even if we can agree that such a person should not have such a weapon in such a situation, he still gets to defend his life. And he was, again, the most important thing, not assaulting anybody, not aggressing against anyone, not provoking anybody. Every single person shot by Kyle Rittenhouse chased him down and attacked him. Every last one. And, so, and, and I so if anybody, no, no, just, no, to, no, just to be very clear, if anybody felt threatened by his presence, the only thing they had to do was not chase him and attack him. And they would have been fine, like everyone else was. And, I think we should move okay. on. All right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. What we were trying to do here is look at the wider ramifications of the case and also what it says about the, the temperature of America as opposed to getting the actual specifics of Carl Rittenhouse's movements specifically on that night. Steve Crone, you've got a bit, little bit of a legal mind. Uh, you have a legal background. You were even clerked on the Supreme Court. Let's just kind of bring this show home. Could you just give us an overview of your understanding of what the, the, uh, the performance of, of the judges in the case and what the two cases actually said about the specific instances, Steve? Yeah, I'll try to answer that as well as maybe make two other points if I could. First, as, as I have been stating throughout the course of both of these trials, I, I'm surprised how many people with regard to the Rittenhouse trial think that the facts are so obvious. It seemed plain to me that this was the case that was what the jury system is all about. The facts were very unclear. Folks who think that Rittenhouse was clearly a murderer, I think characterized the, way, the facts in a way which ignored lots of ambiguities. And I think people who thought Rittenhouse was clearly defending himself and there was just no argument that it was anything other than self-defense. Similarly, have ignored many ambiguities in the facts. It's the quintessential case that goes to a jury. They've seen all the witnesses. They've seen all the testimony. They decide. Ditto the Arbery case in terms of the role of the jury. The difference, of course, being there is that I think the facts were much, much clearer. I, 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 it, it seems to me that that was a much easier case for the jury to decide. So that's my first observation. In terms of the judge, I agree with the comments that were made earlier that the judge in the Rittenhouse case, I did not watch a lot of the Arbery case, so I, I cannot comment on the judge specifically. But the judge in the Rittenhouse case did a poor job on many counts. Whether that actually changed the result is a much more difficult question to answer. We have this very broad concept in American law of harmless error, where although errors have been made by the judge, by one of the, one of the lawyers, those errors are deemed to be not relevant to the ultimate outcome, and therefore, essentially, they're just ignored in terms of the outcome of the case itself. They don't become grounds to overturn the result. And I think the judge made lots of mistakes, but I think it's less clear whether they actually flipped the outcome and that if he had done everything the way he should have, 
there would have been a guilty verdict on any of these counts. Perhaps. I'm not saying there wouldn't have been. I'm just saying it's far from clear. Two more points if you have time, Royfield. I'm checking with you to see if it's okay. Yep, yep, yep. That's all right. The first is, I have to say, I participated in a lot of conversations on Clubhouse about the Rittenhouse case. And I have to tell you, the most insightful comment I heard from anyone, uh, you won't be surprised to hear, it wasn't a comment I made. It was a comment from someone in the room who was a military veteran, clearly very knowledgeable about firearms, about uh, self-defense and military settings. And he he was a uh, a gun owner, very much familiar with and comfortable with, with firearms and with gun culture. And in the course of one of these conversations, he said, when he hears people talking about the Rittenhouse case, and when he hears people opine uh, about, you know, if someone came in my home, they, they go to other scenarios. If someone came in my home and they were trying to steal something, you know, I would shoot them. Or if I was in Rittenhouse's situation, I would have done this or that. And you can't understand what it's like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He said what he hears is a lot of ego and a lot of bravado and not a lot of real understanding about how to use weapons, how to use them responsibly, yet alone the contours of American law with regard to self-defense, provocation, and all of these other legal concepts. And, and I, like I say, I think that's one of the most insightful comments I've heard. I do, I hear what sounds like to me also a lot of ego and bravado that gets mixed into these ideas of the right to carry a gun, etc. And that leads me to my final point. I'm not, I don't feel that the jury reached the wrong result in the Rittenhouse case. Like I say, I think that's a case where a reasonable jury could have found him not guilty of all charges, but a reasonable jury also could have found him guilty of some of the charges. That's what juries are for. But what I do believe is, getting back to your big point about the larger societal issues and the, and the contrast between how America, or at least many Americans, think about these issues and how most Brits think about these issues. It does seem to me crazy that we live in a world where this sort of thing is commonplace. The idea that it is a good idea, something to really argue for, people arguing that Rittenhouse indeed is some sort of hero because a 17-year-old shows up in that situation and creates the sort of potential danger that he clearly created. That doesn't mean he wasn't legally justified in pulling the trigger at the moment he pulled the trigger. But for goodness sakes, do we want to live in a world where 17-year-olds show up at protests thinking that they're there to either keep the peace or protect some property that they have no interest in whatsoever or just sort of be a show of force? I mean, that's, that's crazy. That is ludicrous. And I don't think we want to live in that world. I know I don't. Those are my thoughts. Um, that, Hans and thank you for that, Steve Crone. Thank you for that, Steve Crone. There you go, folks. Uh, that was this week in US and UK politics. Don't forget, if you are listening to this podcast, I know some 5,000 of you religiously download it. Uh, go to uh, a, a podcatcher of your choice. Sorry, an app store of your choice. And uh, go and download the Clubhouse app. And then you can join us for one of these recordings. And they happen on either Wednesdays or Thursdays. So I, it just leaves me just to say uh, thank you to Mike Holden, Eric Tremere, uh, Kelly Saunders, Tyrion Fisher, Lola, Greg Sattel, Dr. Dan, Rick Sanchez, Aaron Fisher, um, Sky Logic. We didn't quite get around to you, but you can talk as soon as we do, uh, as soon as we finish the recording. Hans Ryder and to Steve Crone, thank you for your uh, contributions to a very passionate, spirited and knowledgeable uh, Mid-Atlantic. Don't forget, folks, left of politics is right thinking politics, but we don't demonise 
our right-leaning brethren. We try and win them over with the strength of our arguments. Look after yourselves, but look after your loved ones even better. Take care. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.